The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. I'm joined uh, by Stephanie Preisner, author and broadcaster and Owen O'Malley, Associate Professor of Political Science at DCU. And in a question I'm betting is the first time he's been asked it on air. Owen, are you very sad about Match of the Day? Uh, I don't normally watch it, but uh, it's interesting to see what the BBC are doing. It What's kinda, your take? I just don't understand why he's been brought off. He's He he doesn't even work for the BBC. He's a free, freelancer. And I would, th- I would have thought, and his views aren't exactly that extreme either. So they're not offensive views that you might want to want to roll in. Well, let me, I'll give you, I'll be briefly the BBC. What they will say is, look, this is our single highest paid broadcaster, albeit in sport, but he's our highest paid broadcaster. He is in his personal life attacking express government policy and equating it to the rise of fascism. And that means that everybody can see that he is politically biased and politically active and that's not appropriate for somebody who's being paid licence fee money. He's a fo- he's a football pundit. He talks <laughs> about football and he's on the football a football show. If he were bringing up government policy during match of the day I could see that they'd have a problem. He's not. He's talking about football. He does it well. People like him and what he does outside of that is his own business. He's a, It's a free country and it's free. If, he, if This is cancel culture and if it were the other side the Tories would be railing against it. Stephanie, what's your take? Yeah, I totally agree, though. I didn't know Gary... I only knew Gary Lineker from the Walkers ads until kind of three days ago. Um, So I was like, what's going on here? And I saw all the outrage. I actually saw outrage. The algorithm must have thought that I would agree with um, outrage against Gary Lineker. So I was like, oh, God, what has he done? And I looked it up and I was like, hang on. I think it's really interesting that he's... Now, he doesn't actually say that... He's not really equating it to the rise of fascism. He's saying that the language used by... um, the language used by Rishi Sunak was akin to that of 1930s Germany. The actual quote was that this is an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. Yes, so he's talking about the language used, which I agree with. and, And I think it's very interesting that in order to you know, discount what he's saying or punish him for it, they are now trying to censor him, which I think is exactly what you might have done in 1930s Germany when someone said something like this. Um, yeah, I don't I see, I don't care about Match of the Day. And I think that in his role as BBC pundit for football, he can say whatever he wants on Twitter, particularly when what he is saying is objectively true. See, the bit that worries me, and I don't know what your view is on this one, I... If this is how they react to Gary Lineker putting out one tweet. Now, again, guy in sports, as you make the point, and it is one single tweet. And it's a carefully enough worded. I mean, Jer made that point earlier on that the, the tweet is, is carefully structured. He didn't just come out and point and say Nazis. He, he uh, balanced it up. If that's how the BBC reacts to something like that, how are they handling hard-hitting journalism when it gets close to political sensitivity? Because there should be a lot more threatening stuff to deal with than Gary Lineker's tweets for them. Yeah, and so they you can see that there is a sense that they are pulling things and are really very careful about upsetting the government, which is frankly worrying. And as Stephanie said, you know, this is something that you might see in 1930s Germany where you have the government controlling the state-owned media. And I I mean, I disagree with Stephanie in the sense that it doesn't really matter whether what he said was objectively true or not. It is, he's he's entitled to express opinion, political opinion. Is he though? Because the argument that the BBC, obviously somebody looked at the impartiality guidelines and said, oh, hang on a minute. 
you all sign up and Lineker will have signed up to a contract that requires him to remain impartial on matters of political sensitivity and he didn't. So they will say whatever about the, the, the merits of your argument, whatever about the fact that you're in sports, there is a requirement for you to play with a straight bat and in this instance you didn't. But I think in the, sorry, just, was it not the case and I could be wrong because I'm not very au fait with sport but that he was saying that when, you know, when Qatar, when the World Cup was in Qatar, the BBC were telling them to like absolutely not be impartial on that, to highlight the injustices that were happening in Qatar but when he highlights something that's happening on his own doorstep that's not okay. And I think but again, I can, the t- there is a BBC argument for that because one of the things that every now and then you get where let's say you on, on a show like this you say something about Donald Trump. You will get people saying you're not balanced to which the answer is yes and I'm also not American so it doesn't matter. It is not in the Irish political discourse and doesn't influence Irish voters therefore you can kind of decide to have a rant. The BBC can make an argument that says if you want to get, have a rant about Qatar have at it because it doesn't relate to domestic policy that you could influence. But the CEO of the BBC and... Uh, I don't know much about this either. You you can fill people in, but is is it wasn't Alexander Alistair Campbell saying you know well the CEO of the BBC has funded Boris Johnson to you know inappropriate amounts and does that well not steady also no the, the the chairman of the BBC was involved in facilitating a loan. Uh, to uh, Boris Johnson, which was all legal and above board, but it raises questions about the, the independence, indeed, of the yes. chairman of the BBC, and that's currently <laughs> under investigation. Text saying, Anton, one piece missing is the reaction of the Tory government is straight from the Donald Trump playbook. The crash and burn of the BBC suits Braverman as it deflects from the morally bankrupt and ugly policy of hate. It is a policy driven to encourage hatred, division and racism, and the Tory hierarchy have used an immigrant uh, descendant as the mouthpiece in in the full knowledge that if the same comments were made by an old white man, it would be seen for what it is. The BBC is in jeopardy, not Gary, uh, says uh, 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 WhatsApp. And again, if you want to WhatsApp us, it is 87 How, Stephanie, do they walk themselves back from this? Because you just know there are a lot of sweaty meetings going on today in the BBC. And the objective is, how do we put all of this back in the bottle? And I don't think that they, it's not going to be as easy as I think they first thought it would be because, you know, having tried to be like, okay, Gary, we're not going to put you on match of the day. And they think they believe that loads of other commentators and pundits will be climbing the walls trying to get his job, but they're all standing with him and saying, no, we're not going to do it either. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it down the line until now they have to go to like, I don't know, some sort of global world commentary that's pretty generic. Um, I don't know how they come back from this because to double down, I think will turn more of the, you know, potentially liberal left or whatever whatever way you want to describe them against the BBC and highlight that they're not, you know, that they might be in the pockets of government. I'm not saying that they are. And then if they if they break to it, it might leave more room to for more of this sort of, you know, insurrection as they see it. So I'm, I'm really not sure. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Let us go to things um, closer to home. And Owen, we will kick off with the, the thing that has been making the news all week since the government announced that it wasn't going to roll over. This being the eviction ban and the Daily Mail is leading today that Brian Mahan, their political correspondent, writing thousands of people are set to be evicted from their homes from the end of this month with landlords preparing to sell up. Now, there are some numbers relating to this that I am intrigued by. When the elect- or the uh, eviction ban came in, there were roughly 11,400 people in emergency accommodation. When it ended, there were 11,700 people in emergency accommodation. So the situation is now worse than when the ban came in. Yeah, and that is probably a point that the government is going to make uh, and it will continue to make is that 
an eviction ban isn't going to help. It helps people who are in accommodation at the moment. It makes it difficult for a landlord to to move on. And there's a lot of uh, sense that landlords do want to move on. But we we know that eviction bans cause landlords to want to leave the market. So it's probably not a great policy to have an eviction ban. I mean, in in terms of short term, it perhaps works, but in the medium to long term, it's going to make things worse. But oddly, in this instance, it definitively didn't. I mean, that was the argument they made back in September was, look, we need to buy some breathing room to do some fast moves that'll help. None of the breathing room achieved anything. It's, well, it probably achieved something for the people who were in accommodation who weren't evicted at the time. So it, it did achieve. We well, don't, no, know, we don't know what the numbers would have been had there been no eviction ban. No, it could no, have been do. that there would there have been 15,000. There was 2,700 people who, back in October, had notices to quit. They still have notices to quit. Yes. They're still getting flung out of their houses. But there's now more people in emergency accommodation than there was. They're not helped by that. Their, their situation is worsened. Yeah. So if you're if you're looking for accommodation at the moment, if you're trying to rent an eviction ban and you don't have a place at the moment, an eviction ban doesn't help you. In fact, it probably makes it worse because it means that there are fewer, uh, fewer uh, homes available for you to rent. And of course, Stephanie, the other side of this then is that it means that landlords, uh, to some degree, at least some of the commentary would suggest that landlords are incentivized to leave the market. We saw in the last quarter of 2022 that 40% of residential home sales were small landlords saying, hump this for a game of soldiers, I'm out. Yeah, because there's no incentive. I think what we're looking at here is that rising mortgage interest rate that people have seen. So if you had a a property that was an investment property where you were paying a mortgage, it was, you know, like 2.5% and you... Uh, 2.5% interest and you had tenants in it and they were kind of roughly covering the mortgage and maybe a little bit more so that you had income coming in. Now you might see that actually the rent has increased, or your mortgage has increased dramatically. You're not allowed to increase the rent because it's a rent pressure zone and you're also not allowed to evict the people to get new people in so that you can increase the rent. It's it's a, you know, it's a, it's a flashpoint of issues and I don't know, I'm not really sure where, you know, when they say the eviction ban hasn't worked there are now more people you have to presume that these people weren't evicted then they may have lost their homes for other reasons but you know landlords we do have a constitutional right and landlords have constitutional rights to owning property and what they want to do with it and i think there are landlords coming up against there's you know there's landlords who have their own representative bodies coming up against the government saying what you were doing is unconstitutional i bought my house it was my investment property i wanted as my pension and I can do with it whatever I want. It is mine. I own it. And if I want to give it to my son or I want to sell it, that is up to me. And putting an, evic- an eviction ban on me and controlling what I do is unconstitutional. And so I think they have that pressure as well. Owen, can you as- explain one bit? Sorry, Stephanie, I just want to get Owen's no, take on one fine. aspect of this, which is, in theory, this is an emergency. Now, if we cast our minds back to 2010, when uh, 2008 through about 2011, that, that period, and you look at real emergencies, the government was able to take charge of banks. It was able to restructure financial institutions. It was able to put in huge guarantees. It was able to issue bonds. It did phenomenal things in a very short period of time because it's a real emergency. Why does this not feel like a real emergency? And in COVID, it was able to do a lot of things that we were told was impossible were impossible to do. And I think you've got a point. There is a sense of drift with the government. You know, it's kind of look slowly. We think things will improve, and you know, all we need to do is tweak this and tweak that. And you don't get a sense from the government that you know 
this is the one thing. I mean, people talk about all sorts of other emergencies, but really they're all related to housing. If you sort out the housing problem. But do people not other, vote on it? Does it not matter to voters? Of course it does. It must. I mean, if you're, we know that anybody under 30 is not voting for Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. They're not voting for the government parties. So the people who are most affected by this are young people and they're not, they are voting for Sinn Féin. They'll be voting for the Social Democrats now. And uh, they, it will be impossible for the government parties to hold on to those or to get those votes. So people do vote on it. It. And it, the sense is that the government isn't doing something like, you know, it's set up a housing agency and things like that, but actually going in and saying, OK, we're just going to clear this land and we're going to start building. We're going to get things built. Because, But instead, it's, you know, we'll tweak this and maybe we'll incentivise landlords to do this and maybe we'll get uh, developers to do that. But it's not moving quickly enough. And there isn't the sense that this is a national emergency and we need to do things quickly. Let us move. Yes, of course, Cancer. I'm not sure that, you know, when you're saying, like, is this not a voting issue? It absolutely is, but I don't see any other political party suggesting anything that is, you know, that that is going to be a quick fix. I don't know that the government can see a quick fix and are just ignoring it. Eviction bans are useful tools in preventing homelessness in the very short term, but they have to be accompanied by broader measures aimed at addressing structural and systemic issues that lead to housing insecurity. And those things take time. Well, it's funny, I I can almost hear Owen O'Brien typing the text that outlines Sinn Féin policy to start building as as soon as is humanly possible. If you are (laughs) Owen O'Brien and you want to save the money and WhatsApp us, you can send it in to Owen. Eight seven fourteen hundred one zero six. Come here. We will finish on something positive. This could be our weekend for the Oscars. Own. We could take home all before us. Green carpet is out. What a time to be alive and Irish and so forth. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, and as a patriotic Irishman, I hope we do well. Um, I, I'm still not sure that things like Oscars say an awful lot about anything other than what's in fashion at the moment. Uh, and you know, the, there are Irish films that are meant to do well but God I don't know if you've seen The Banshees of Inishir but I don't get what the whole thing is about it just wasn't that good a film Oh Heresy uh, Heresy Oh and hang your head in shape It's nice I, I made a similar he's, point he's, and was told that I was a total heretic in Philistine okay. and shouldn't be allowed to Stephanie do you want to defend The Banshees quick before we go uh, I don't. Oh no. Where's Gary Lineker when you need him? <laughs> oh, that's... There's, if, uh, if, you, if you do look at some of the websites, I'm not promoting gambling, but if you look at the odds, it's not, you know, I think it's, it's going to be kind of an Italian 90 situation where it's amazing to have got there and I think we might bring something home, but I'm not sure that it's going to be the, the, the title. Did you miss we... the preface to this where I said, on a happier note? <laughs> Hooray, but we're over there. We got a trip to LA and all of our journalists are over there. We can, we can celebrate being Irish. You not know? only are all of our journalists over there, but Henry McKean is over there and after the break we'll be getting his um, report on what's gone on in a big thank you to Owen O'Malley, Associate Professor in Political Science at DCU and a big Thank you to Stephanie Prizer, author and broadcaster. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.